You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Reverend Madeline Hart Anderson, the new-ish pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church, part of the Presbyterian Church USA, and now also one of the co-presidents of the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Reverend Madeline, welcome to our show. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. So you mentioned before the start of the show, one of the things you've been grappling with in your community is dignity with dying. And so perhaps you could start, especially for our international listeners, by explaining the change in law that happened recently in New Mexico with the passage of the End of Life Options Act, the HB 47. Yeah, so... The HB 47, the End of Life Options Act, allows people who have received a terminal diagnosis um, and who are in great suffering to have the option to medically end their life um, and reduce the suffering that they're in. It's it's been a long time coming, in my opinion. Um, This... The option for this, the end-of-life options, it really began as a movement primarily on the in the Pacific Northwest um, several decades ago, and slowly states have begun adopting it. I believe that New Mexico was the 11th state mm-hmm. to adopt it. Um, and so it's a, a, a movement to allow people to face their death with dignity so that they don't wind up slowly, often wasting away in a great deal of pain which is traumatic not only for the person who is dying, but also for all of their loved ones and their caregivers who are surrounding them. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but the cause of death that's put on the death certificate for this, uh, that came through from this act, is the terminal illness itself, isn't it? Yes. So it's, some people talk about physician-assisted suicide, and I'm not, hugely fond of that phrase, and neither are this bill's sponsors. Um, It is self-administered medication, but the sort of the outlook of both the medical caregivers and from the law's standpoint is that the diagnosis that this person receives is going to kill them at some point. And why are we forcing them to continue on in pain? And so the idea is that it is the disease that brought them to the end of their life regardless of the manner in which they actually reached their end. There were religious voices. When this came to, uh, came to discussion, there were religious voices that spoke out against the new law. There were religious voices that spoke in favor of it. So, so I think it's, if it's okay for me to ask, what's your perspective, your personal perspective, your faith perspective on the End of Life Options Act? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's, probably fairly clear from my introduction of the End of Life Options Act that I think it's a really wonderful thing to have um, in law, both for doctors and nurses and medical caregivers, for families, for individuals who've received terminal diagnoses. Um, And a lot of that comes out of both my own faith background 
and also my life experience. Um, so I grew up in, was born in Southern California and grew up in San Francisco. Um, I lived in San Francisco from 1990 to 1999, where my dad served mm-hmm. a church in downtown San Francisco. 10% of the membership of our congregation was HIV positive or had AIDS, which meant that the bulk of my childhood was spent in the dying process with many beloved members of the congregation. And many of them lingered and lingered and lingered, um, which was really hard for everyone involved. Um, and so from a very from a very young age, I've always been aware of sort of the, the complicated mess of end of life that, you know, we, we all say, oh, I, I hope that so-and-so who's received a terminal diagnosis and is in pain goes quietly in their sleep. But the reality is that's not, that's not often what happens. Um, and so watching, and they were mostly men, watching all these men who we loved reach this point where they were just suffering. And it was, I, I mean, it was a, for the adults of the congregation, I was a child. Right, right. <laughs> for the adults of the congregation, it was a hugely sacred duty to walk alongside them in hospice. And yet I think we also all wish that there were something we could, we could do, they could do, doctors could do. And of course, this was in the 90s and um, hospice care facilities wouldn't always take HIV positive or, a- or people with AIDS into their care. Um, doctors wouldn't always treat them. People wouldn't care for them with respect. Um, And so all of that then comes with me um, everywhere I go. I carry the memory of those men with me everywhere I go. And, um, you know, I'm also, I'm the child of clergy. And so, you know, it is very common at clergy households for dinner table conversation to be so-and-so has entered hospice. They're in so much pain. You know, we're giving them... Doctors are giving them so much morphine. They're giving them so much painkillers, and it doesn't matter. They're still in pain. And wouldn't it be so good if they could just go quietly in their sleep tonight? And, you know, after you hear that at the dinner table as a kid, like more than like five times in a year, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you start to get the picture that we're missing something in our medical system for end-of-life care. And then... Um, in 2020, right as COVID started, um, my grandmother, who was 92, she b- realized that if she got COVID, it would be a death sentence. Um, and that she had moved in with my parents for the express purpose of having control over the end of her life. She didn't want to die in a hospital. She didn't want to die in an ICU. She didn't want to die with a lot of treatments. She just wanted to die quietly at home. Now, she was a dialysis patient. She was in kidney failure. And so we knew that if she stopped dialysis, she would take about 10 days to die. And so in mid-April of 2020, my grandmother decided to stop going to dialysis. And she did this with, you know, the blessing of her doctor, She did this with the support of the dialysis staff who had cared for her for 10 years. And she did this with my mom, so her daughter, and her son, my uncle, and her other daughter, my aunt, gathered around at my parents' house. I was living at home at the time, so I was also there. My dad was there. 
And so we got to spend this 10-day, we called it a love feast, Mm. with her. And it was amazing and it was wonderful. And she kept saying, I wish everyone could die like this. And it occurred to me that there's not so much difference between my grandmother stopping dialysis, which no one has ever questioned or said, well, she, you know, died by suicide, Mm-hmm. And someone who wants to take this medically offered option to end their life and end their suffering and be relieved of that. And, you know, the hard truth of, you know, of life is that sometimes healing looks like death. Mm. That that is the healing, is that release, is that letting go. And so... With all of that experience, I come to something like the End of Life Options Act. And I don't know how to receive it other than with joy and thanksgiving and grief. Right. Um, Because, of course, death is awful. Like, of course, we don't want our loved ones to die. Of course, we don't want them to make that choice. But I think it's also true that we want them to be able to be released from suffering. And if being released from suffering means self-administered medication to do that. You know, I can find no argument within me against that and no argument within the God that I have come to know and love against that as well. I think God desires for us abundant life. Hmm. And if life becomes a punishment, (laughs) if life becomes something that feels like a curse, that is not what God wants for us. Um, We don't need to be like Job. No, we don't need to be like Job, which is a whole, I have a whole thing about Job that we probably don't want to get into (laughs) because we don't have that long. But, you know, we're not made for suffering. God will accompany us in our grief and despair and our suffering. And, you know, from a Christian tradition, I see so much of that in in Christ's own walk to the cross and in Christ's grief at his friend Lazarus's death that we see, you know, but we see that in the, in the Hebrew Testament as well, that we see that we have a God who walks with us no matter where we go. I mean, I think, I think that that's true from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through, you know, for us, Revelation, mm-hmm. um, that, that God walks with us in grief and in sorrow and in joy and in laughter and in love always. And that God wants that, that abundance for us. And when life becomes something we can no longer bear, I don't think God desires for us to live in pain forever until our bodies finally end. I don't mm. think that that's what God wants for us. I've, I'm so moved by what you've shared. I think for me... Part of my, what's surprised me, what's been refreshing to hear is you come at this as a member of clergy Mm -hmm. and at least for the first part of your response, it wasn't about text. It wasn't about theology. It's about real people, real people who you being born in a clergy setting saw struggle at the end of life and and then essentially applied theology to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important theological statement in and of itself, that it's not theology from a text. 
because we all come at any one of our sacred texts from our own perspective. Right. Your perspective is having seen countless men mm-hmm. over the 1990s die in cruel ways, you might say, right. die through suffering. And then you bring that to the text to read. I find that a very refreshing, very important way of approaching this as a religious leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone brings their own stuff to life and to the text. And um, that's all we can do. You know, God doesn't ask us to be blank slates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um I So part of my theological and ecclesiastical training required me to do what is called one unit of clinical pastoral education, which is basically a summer um, internship as a full-time hospital chaplain. And one of the things that we talked about a lot in that is that we want, of course, what we all want is life-giving theology for people, not life-limiting theology. And yet also in a moment of crisis— do not try to fix people's life-limiting theology. Work within that for them. Um, And that for me was like a really helpful (laughs) shift on and thinking about all of these things that, yes, of course, we all come to it with different things. And of course, over the long haul, I would like for everyone to have life-giving theologies. But where can I find the life-giving within someone's own life-limiting theology and how can I help them work through that? And that may mean working with, you know, a parishioner's husband whose wife has decided that it's time that she is in too much pain and she wants this option. How do I work with her husband who cannot bear to let her go? Right. We have to take a pause. (laughs) Um, We have the luxury of a pause. We'll come back after this break. To talk about, you opened up the theological aspect and to talk about where is God in terminal illness. So you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom here in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Reverend Madeline Hart Anderson, a pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Reverend Madeline Hart Anderson, pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church. And we've been having an extraordinarily powerful discussion about end of life and particularly the End of Life Options Act, the HB 47. And before the break, you shared some very powerful personal testimony of why you support that bill and then brought in theology, talking of God walking with us, God desiring abundant life. And I I guess that leads to the question, where is God in terminal illness? Um, For the patient, for the family, sometimes people will ask the question, why does God allow these things to happen? When you are faced with this, as you seem to have been faced with for many years, What's your answer to where is God in terminal illness? I mean, the first, my first honest reaction when I got asked that question is, oh, no. (laughs) Um, Because it is a hard question to answer. And it's one that we all struggle with. It's a struggle that we see throughout the scriptures, right? Like, you know, from the book of Job, you know, all the way to Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? This is a question that we struggle with all the time. And so, you know, I think the first thing, and specifically right for for members of my congregation, (laughs) whose theological um, sort of not formation, but continued journey, theological journey I am somewhat responsible for, um, is to say first off and straight out, I don't think God sends terminal diagnoses to people. Um, And frankly, if that is... If that is how we are conceiving of God, then I don't want to believe in a God like that. Um, Go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, because if for no other reason, then at least in my textual biblical tradition, any concept of reward and punishment is communal, not personal. Right. And even if we were to believe in a God who looks down from on high and says, you have not done the right thing. I am going to punish you. That's you plural, not you singular. And, and so right. so even for me, I find that a very, very important, profound challenge because as our society has become more individualized, it's almost like people assume then God must be punishing me. Right. And it's right. This is the question of a thing that I am trying to train my congregation, right, that we interpret the Bible, we don't translate it. <laughs> um, and in English, unless you live in the South, we don't have a second person plural. And if you, when you are mm. reading the Bible, reading scripture to your congregation, say y'all instead y'all. of you, yeah. um, I would hear about it right. after church and they would not be very happy words. <laughs> right. um, but it is true. and it, And I think that that, you know, that idea that it is a communal, that we are to be in community together and we do not receive individual punishment. Um, you know, Christianity differs in some respects for that. But also when we say a prayer of confession on Sunday morning in my in my church, we say a corporate prayer of confession. Huh. We confess the sins of the body and the body meaning the community, not right. the individual physical body. Um, and so I think it's important as as people are struggling with terminal diagnoses to remind them of that, that this is not a punishment. You haven't done anything wrong. Um, and, and that is as true for someone who gets a cancer diagnosis out of the blue as it is for someone who gets a cancer, lung cancer diagnosis after smoking two packs a day for 30 right, years. Right. Yes, there is correlation. Yes, probably you wouldn't have gotten lung cancer had you not been smoking so much. But it's not punishment. Right. It's just the physical result of what happens. Um, We're very obsessed with punishment, Hmm. particularly in Christianity, but I think broadly in American culture. Um, And trying to move away from that is very countercultural. It's very hard. (laughs) Um, It's so ingrained in us, it's hard to even not think in those categories. You know, but I think sort of where is God in suffering, right? Like, isn't that the question that theology at the end of it is always trying to answer? And I think that, you know, God is with us. Um, that, I mean, this is a, a the closing line of, for the, um, it's called a brief, a brief statement of faith from the Presbyterian Church USA. And the closing line is, in life, in death, in life beyond death, God is with us. We are not alone. Thanks be to God. And that I come back to over and over again is, you know, I don't know 
why you got this diagnosis. Right. I don't know why you have it. I don't have easy answers for you. But I'm here with you. And right. God is here with you. And if they're a member of, a ch- of the church, the church is here with you. And, you know, we will send you cards and we will send you as many dinners as you would like. <laughs> we will visit you when it's not COVID. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and we will be the physical presence to remind you that God is with you and you are not walking through this alone, even when you may most feel like it. Which is perhaps not the most satisfactory answer to the question, but I think it's the only question, the only answer I have is that God is with us. I'd say it's a very traditional answer, actually, in the sense of thinking back to the book of Job. Right. Who, who are the people who get it wrong? It's all of his companions. Some people say friends. I don't think they're friends. All of his companions who say, you must have done something to cause this. Right. Which, like, go away. Right. <laughs> right. And God, God specifically refutes that at the end and mm-hmm. says, who are you to know that? Right. And I'm, I'm very moved by the way that you framed this. Moved by the question on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Because if he can say it on the cross... Mm-hmm. Can't anyone say it? Right. And, and so therefore being able to ask the question is okay so long as we don't, like Job's companion, say, well, it's because you did something wrong. Right. And maybe there is a, a correlation mm-hmm. between previous behavior and not. But, but that doesn't mean, as you said, it's a punishment. That doesn't mean that we need to search ourselves necessarily and find our own blame. Right. And I think, too, right, part of that question and the power of that question is the, the grief and the desperation. And, I mean, frankly, when you're asking someone why you've been forsaken, the rage behind that, um, that we can have all those emotions at God. Right. And God will remain with us even when we are furious or completely grief-stricken. Um, I was, gonna, I was gonna say, is it rage? Or is it is it I thought you were meant to be just? Is it that confusion, that bargaining almost? Almost. I mean I but I th- right, and I th- I think for me, and this is you know my own experience of emotions, is part of the underlying um emotion behind the question is of I thought you were supposed to be just is rage that it feels unjust. Right. Like, why should this person I love die? Right. Why should they receive this diagnosis? I'm mad. I don't want this to be. And it seems to not be the world that I understand God to desire for us. And so how can it be? My God, my God. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm also reminded of, it's a, a different type of suffering, but, um, and I've lost the psalm number now, but it's toward the sort of end of the psalms. And it's the psalm by the rivers of, rivers of Babylon. We sat down and wept. Mm. for Zion. And our captors, you know, asked us to play. We could not play. We hung our lyres up. And, you know, we like to forget the last little bit of that psalm, which is that terrible imprecation against the Babylonians about taking their little ones' heads and dashing them against the rocks. It's a horrible wish. But also, haven't we all had that wish? Haven't we all had that deep sense of rage and things are unfair and I want... I want a tit for tat. I want a justice that looks bloody. 
Um, so when that comes to terminal illness, the only person to blame right. essentially is God. Right. And so I think that all of that is in there. And I think part of what that psalm reminds me of is that we're, we're, we're allowed to feel that kind of rage. We are not allowed to act on it. Right. But we are allowed to feel it. And God is, frankly, a very safe place for us to express that kind of rage and to express that kind of grief and that kind of just seeing sort of that that seeing red that covers so many other emotions, you know. I think in in our final two minutes, there there were some people when the – when the bill was being debated, were saying that if you abandon life, you abandon God. Life is a gift from God. Therefore, by ending your life early, in any way, you are abandoning God. And I wonder if perhaps you could speak to that in the final couple of minutes, especially to those who might have heard that, been hurt by that, or those who may think that theology do you have a, a differing perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, well, I don't think you're abandoning God by choosing um, to exercise your right to die with dignity, um, and I think that that's a s- uh, self-censoring. I, <laughs> I think that's quite a limited view of God to say that God's care for us, that God's frankly, power mm. ends at the end of our life. You know, that that seems rather limited. Um, I mean, and, you know, as a, you know, as a Presbyterian and as many Reformed Christian traditions say, you know, that we are not alone in death. Right. And we don't really say anything about the manner of that death. And you know, back to what I said at the beginning, which is that I don't think that God desires suffering for us. And if your suffering is so acute that this is the only way you find relief, I don't think God would deny you that option. I don't think that that taking that option separates you from God. I have been so very moved by this conversation I encourage anyone who's listening, who's affected by this conversation, to feel free to reach out Mm -hmm. to faith leader, to support, to doctors, to anyone who can help support you in this. Reverend Madeline, thank you so much for coming here this evening, for opening up a really important conversation. I, I really do appreciate it. And I'm sure there are countless people listening who do as well. Thank you for having me. So thank you to Reverend Madeline Hart Anderson, pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church and co-president of the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. I really do hope that you come back to our show in the future. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>